Hello, and welcome to Ding and Dent, a gaming podcast full of all the youthful exuberance of two gaming dads past their prime. Coming to you from Chicago and St. Louis, here are your two hosts, Rafael Cordero and Charlie Thiel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 116. Back behind the mic, getting things moving, starting to feel like a little bit of a swing of things, Charlie. Hopefully, we can keep this going. Uh, thank you, everyone, for yeah. tuning in to Ding and Dent and for the nice comments about us coming back. We really appreciate um, all the, the posts and tweets and stuff. It's been uh, quite quite a warm welcome back. So we we appreciate it. I'll probably continue to mention that because it uh, it's really nice to see that. Uh, this is Ding and Dent. I am Raf Cordero. This is Charlie Thiel. Charlie, how are you? I'm doing good. Um, fresh off two in-person Ooh. game nights since last recording, so... So I'm yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I'm having my first in-person game night here in a couple days. Um, it's feels a little bit weird, but I'm I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> it yeah, it's weird. Uh, we're gonna jump into that in a few minutes, real quick. We I do want to mention that we are sponsored by um, Miniature Market. We're been very happy to be uh, partnered with them for such a very long time. And so, if you're out there shopping for games, getting ready for your own game nights to return, or just continuing the collection as uh, as many of us have, um, check out miniaturemarket.com. We really appreciate their support and, and would appreciate if you support them. They're, uh, they're fantastic. Also, we are part of the Inside Voices Media Network, uh, friends with other podcasters and content creators, the Five by um, Eric Yurko is part of our team, Netters. I mean, there's just some great people on the, on, on the network, so please check out insidevoicesnetwork.com and support all of them as well. Uh, we're going to jump into it. We're going to get into freestyling. Um, Charlie, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about my game nights. Um, I guess take a break from mentioning Kickstarters. (laughs) I, I just wanted to kind of run through basically most of the games I played in the past two game nights and just give like a one minute impression, I guess. So like a, a old school, what we've been playing lately, but much quicker. Lightning round. So played Fantasy Realms again. Yeah, played Fantasy Realms again. Game is just amazing, as it's always been. If you've not heard of Fantasy Realms, it's a little card game from WizKids. Uh, been out for like three, four years. I think 2017, so maybe four years. Um, totally awesome. New new expansion came out. I've not played with it, but it looks interesting. I played Excavation Earth from Mighty Boards. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a heavy Euro with a really interesting theme of like earth goes extinct and is abandoned uh, abandoned by humans and basically nearby aliens come and start excavating artifacts and then selling them like on on their um, interstellar markets and stuff and so it's like it's like um turning um, like human culture into a commodity and so there's some interesting, interesting theme at work there but then it's a heavy like economic euro uh you know where you have to like sequence actions to do things and it takes you know a lot of effort not normally my type of game, um, but it but it is interesting. I have it. Uh, so I, I dug that. I have it right here, ready for uh, probably not this week, but I'd like to play it soon. Yeah, it's it's uh it's heavy. Let's just <laughs> okay. say that. So it can feel like work. Yeah. Uh, then I finally tried Everdell. I've not played Everdell before. Um, I liked yep. it. I I thought this was a much more um, accessible or family weight game than mm-hmm. it is, right? Like it's like a, you know, tableau builder that's not, it's not complex, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's family weight, at least people I play with. Um, but there were some cool things there. I like the, you get a free creature card with certain buildings or constructions, I think they're called. 
Um, so there's some synergies there and some cool um, effects, and, and I like the variable goals and all that stuff. So I liked Everdell. Um, I would still rather play Race for the Galaxy or Jump Drive in Tableau Builders, but Everdell was cool. Awkward Guests really surprised me. Um, this was a small game. It came out a while ago. Uh, I remember hearing it mentioned a few times, but I never really looked into it. And it's a, another one of those clue-type deduction games, um, kind of like Mr. the Abbey, Clue, like I said. Uh, there's a few others that kind of copied that formula. We're trying to piece together like who did something, motives, things like that, weapons. Um, but this one's cool because your information's passed out in cards and then traded between players. But it's really the type of information you're gathering. It's not just... Um, motive, killer, and then weapon, which are the three things you need. But there's also information about like who was in what room at the time of the murder, um, who like how um, housekeepers saw certain people moving through certain rooms. And there's like this map with like connected rooms. So there's like a spatial element of trying to piece together like a mental puzzle of who moved where for the murder to happen. It's, it's just really cool. Um, not perfect, but cool. Finally, tried doing Imperium, which is like everyone's favorite game from yeah except for i uh, i haven't picked it up um i mean i would have picked it up immediately in a normal year um and i would i would like to go pick it up i just it, i think there's still some copies at the game store i just haven't haven't done so yeah so, so i said except for mine <laughs> i don't i don't dislike this game so i was trying to throw a joke in there but um i think it's a very smooth worker placement deck building combination it's it's cool. I liked it. I don't like worker placement. I like this. I don't like deck building that much either, honestly. Yeah. Um, although I do when you integrate it with other stuff. So it's you know this is a better version, or this is more like how I like the format of deck building to be used. Um, and the Dune theme is there. Uh, it's not there, you know, nearly as much as Dune, the board game, the classic one. Um, but it's there. I like this game. It was this was like one of those times where you go into a game, you've heard a lot about it, and you kind of have some preconceived notions and. Usually, you know, you're wrong or surprised. This was exactly what I thought it would be. I'd give it like a 7 out of 10, which is, which is a good, good very you, good yeah. rating for me. Yeah, I would I would definitely play this anytime someone wanted to. I'm not going to buy it, though. Um, you know, I just don't have the space to have 7s on, on my shelf unless they're like something really weird. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I understand why people like it so much. It probably will not be in my top 10 in 2020, but it's not like it's far out. Um, yeah, so then two more. So Ruination is... One of the best games I've played lately. And this surprised me a little bit. This is from Colossal Games. It's an area control, dudes on a map game. So that's not surprising that I would like that. And it's also post-apocalypse, which I don't think there's a post-apocalyptic um, dudes on a map game that we've seen yet, unless I'm missing one. Um, designer is Travis Chance. He left Colossal, and now he's like a lead designer at CMOD or developer. Um, but he formed Colossal, and, and this was his, maybe his last game with them. I'm, I'm going to try to talk about this game in the future, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But what surprised me is that this dudes on a map area control genre is so saturated at this point. There's just so many games in this category, and it's probably my favorite genre of game. But it's just hard to like really f be impressed by new entries. Uh, you know, it's it, they're too many other games that you have to like copy off of or to try to lightly innovate on that everything feels derivative. This definitely has heavy influences that you can see where they come from, but this surprised me. It was a little unique. It didn't feel quite like anything else, the, the sum of the mm -hmm. parts, um, and I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. The last game I'm going to mention is Deranged, and this is a game no one's really talking about. It It's from um, originally from Hobby World, 
which is a Russian publisher that did Spyfall. Oh yeah. Um and yeah, and then it's it was imported by Ultra Pro in the North America is how you'd find it. I think I mean this is not like a a huge top like five of the year game, so but still I think it's not getting any buzz because it um it came out like right when COVID uh, you know was starting yeah. up. So like it never got convention presence, none of that. Now I don't know about this game yet too, so it's kinda weird. It's probably closest to Betrayal House on the Hill, but it's not really that. It's just a game, a gothic horror game that is really kind of um, not heavily strategic, more about the story and the kind of crazy stuff happening. Um, it's weird. It's like players can, it's semi-cooperative. Players can win together. Some can win, some can lose. You're trying to get rid of curses that you start with, which are kind of just go to an area. This game has a really good um visual side like the artwork is very striking and unique it's board is, is amazing um the gameplay i'm not sure it was i played it once and it was like um it had some rough edges that i want to see if it happens again if we play uh but i wanted to mention that i played that i don't know if i'll talk about that in Ding and Dent again but maybe it was interesting but not great um yeah so that's my that's Blitz my freestyling uh, a bunch of quick yeah hits. it's making me jealous of the of the game nights yeah, it was they, they were good. Um, so my, my freestyle is is, uh, is an RPG. It's called Honey Heist. Some of the listeners may have heard of it. Um, this is a really interesting RPG. It the rules only take up one page, like one big page. If you it's it's like four dollars or something like that on on itch uh, itch.io. And one page is the rules for players, and the other page is the is the the back of it is the rules for the DM. But this is rules is very very light here so unlike an rpg where you have skills and feats and and abilities and and stuff like like alien like i talked about recently uh you only have two stats um and those stats are criminal which you use when you're trying to do anything related to like crime um heist stuff or human things and then because your other stat is bear which is what you use when you do anything related to like being a bear because honey heist is a game where you're trying to pull off an oceans 11 style heist to steal honey but you're all bears like grizzly bears or panda bears or whatever uh and so it's really silly um the entire the entirety of character creation is just rolling on uh like some d6 tables like are you a grizzly bear are you grizzled veteran who's good at hacking uh, are you a panda bear whose special ability is just that you can eat anything that looks like bamboo and you got to try to figure out how to work that into an rpg um it's it's just super rules light and therefore becomes i don't know it's like really refreshing to play this i've played it a couple times recently and it's just so different than any RPGs. Like you can't really prep for it, right? The, the rules do not give you enough to prep. Um, they, they basically give you a generic setting, some, some settings for where the game is going to be, but there's no, there's not really a module per se for it. Right. So you've just got to kind of embrace the storytelling aspect of an RPG and, and even less structured than like an, a power by the apocalypse that has mechanisms that drive narrative in, in certain ways. This is just straight up, telling a story together and, and you roll some dice every now and then to kind of help see what happens but you, you've got to be willing to embrace letting the players tell as much story as the gm and trying to do one of those like you rarely say no sort of things um because you're you're really making it up as you go along everyone but it's it's so funny when we've played it and 
I like it because playing playing just like one night of Honey Heist, I think has it makes me a better GM when I do go to play even like an alien module that does have that structure because it it just kind of forces you to let go of control as a as a game master as a GM um, and embr- like I said just embrace that storytelling and the more I play RPGs and we've we've played a bit through the pandemic the more I'm just realizing that what to me is fun about them is like the, the storytelling that you're telling together and then the structure that, you know, the rules are great and, and we, I need them, right? You need them to have a structure around it. But at the end of the day, what's fun about it is, is, is the story, right? And so a game like Honey Heist, which is like, it's a one page RPG just kind of forces you to let go of everything and embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, um, like the one page RPG has been like a thing for a while. I remember, yeah. I think Lady Blackbird was like the first, um, that really like kind of brought that to the popular main, somewhat mainstream. That was mm-hmm. in 2009. That's a, it's a really cool, I mean, I, I don't know anything about Honey Heist, but it's a really cool sort of style of design, a one page RPG, because like you said, you don't really prep for it. The, the nature of the rules sort of get you in the right mood to be free like that, mm-hmm. right? Like, cause there's nothing there. So it's like you have it, that puts that atmosphere in play as, as a GM, like you're just kind of running with this loose guidelines, really simple system. And you kind of are much more free in how you play. It's kind of liberating. Yeah. And I think that's almost like pure role playing. Like that's, that's what role playing like is supposed to be. Not that, you know, like D and D is not role playing, but like, that's like the the essence of what D and D was built from. That, so it's cool to kind of get back to that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it really strips it down to its basic. And I think it is really interesting from a design perspective to look at a game like that and say, you know, there could have just as easily been, I mean, there's plenty of room on, it's not like this page is packed, right? There's plenty of room where if if Grant Howard, the, the designer, had wanted to, I don't know, put stats for driving and stats for hacking and stats for smooth talking and stats for, I don't know, other heist related, like think of like Ocean's Eleven or the Italian job, whatever, various skills. They could have, but when you do that, then that, I think to your point, it kind of frames the way you play. You sit down and you say, okay, well, these are the things that I can do. So in this game, I'm going to need to do these things. When your only stats are bare and criminal, you just do different things because the game the game mechanisms do push your play. And so in this case, it's like, well, uh, I can either as a bear try to approach this guard gate and I don't know, bluff my, I can't bluff my way through it. I'm a bear. So I'm just going to charge through the guard gate because that's what bears would do here. Um, and so like, it just, it works to, to, to push things in a really fun light, light direction. Um, and yeah, there's the more, the more I kind of get into this, there's like a, a, a really incredible, almost avant-garde indie RPG scene. Uh, Travis Hill, if you follow him on Twitter, he's really big into RPGs and and, and zines. Uh, and some of his, like there's a, he's got a um, an RPG called Reunification and it's about like the refugee experience basically where you're, you're reuniting with people uh, after you've escaped from like an refugee camp. And it's not an RPG game per se, but you're you're writing letters to each other like in the time before you would reunite and talking about your experiences and the there's like I said this is like very almost avant-garde world of of RPGs out there that kind of bend and twist what it means to to 
to be an RPG, right? So far removed from what D&D would be, but there's really cool stuff out there. So um, I recommend Honey Heist wholeheartedly, uh, um, and it's very easy and very cheap to find, uh, but definitely in general recommend maybe looking into some of these kind of one-page short indie RPGs because you never know what you uh, what you might find. Uh, so that's our freestyle, and we're going to get into the uh, one-game section, part of our new format, uh, which many people have said sounded very familiar to our old format, which which I guess is a good thing. <laughs> this wasn't a, a dramatic change, and it, it's still familiar. Um, but I've been enjoying kind of a deep focus on, on one game, and I'm excited to hear about uh, your first game here, Charlie. Yeah, so this game, I believe right now, is my game of 2020. Um it's it's a little close. Cosmic Frog's up there, and, and I've had a tough time deciding. But Forgotten Waters from Playdeck Games is an excellent game. I was sort of um, asleep on this one. So I, I didn't try this game right when it came out. I remember hearing about it, and what, what really kind of turned me off of the concept was Comanauts is also from Playdeck, and that's a storybook game, um, like Stuffed Fables. Mm-hmm. And Comanauts, I thought, was not good at all. Okay, I, I wrote a negative review of that. I just, it didn't work for me in my group. So take that and then take, um, I think Gen 7 was the follow-up to um, I'm Dead of Winter with the Crossroads, right? It was Gen 7 was the name of that game. The, um, the big legacy sci-fi game that was like the second game with the Crossroads events. And that game bombed. I didn't play that game, but it, it just did terrible. And, and, and I don't remember anyone liking that, um, you know, reviewers. So... This game is like the third game that uses crossroad events. It's another storybook game when the last one did not impress me. And it's kind of like, it's a pirate game, but it's kind of, um, I think I like to compare it to like Muppet Treasure Island more or like um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, so it's not serious pirate. There's serious, you know, aspects to it, but it's not like, it's not like what Deadwood is for Westerns. It's not that, you know, it's not, it's not the uh, HBO rated R pirate mm-hmm. story. Um, which isn't a bad thing, but that's, I prefer more serious games. So all those things were working against it. And I was like, okay, whatever, forgotten wires, uh, I'll ignore it. Um, and then Joel Eddy put it on his top, in his top 10 of 2020 and was talking about it. And I guess I gave it more of a chance listening to him talk about it. I think it was like number three or four for him. And, um, it sounded pretty cool. So then I started looking into it more and I started seeing other people's like opinions of it. I think Dan Throughout really liked it. Um, and Mark Bigney on Survey Wrong About Games, I think liked it. I could be wrong there, but I think he liked it. Some other people I have geek buddies on BGG. And so I checked this game out and um, got a copy, and it really blew me away. Um, so what it is, it's like all kinds of things, okay? And that's probably the biggest criticism, in that it's messy if you're just kind of looking at it. It works pretty well together, but it's still kind of a messy game. You have a storybook, which has like worker placement locations, um, you're going to put just your character down as like a worker, just one, you don't have multiple workers and it's cooperative. So we're all kind of have a pirate character working together in that worker placement book. Like one of the pages of the storybook is a big picture, which is cool and, and sets like the scene. And the other page is all the actions that can be like at sea. Like, so it can be a picture of a boat and you doing things in your ship. It can be like a, a island you find in like a location. It could be a port. Um, it's pretty you know, like um, malleable, and it, and it does a good job of, of representing different areas. Okay, and then you got also a sideboard. It's not really a sideboard because it's really important. It's it's equally imp- as important as the book. That is like the um, open ocean, and your ship is represented in there and sailing around. It's almost kind of like battle stations represented your spaceship. 
Um, and then you kind of had like a zoomed in view also. Um, the board will change each scenario. It's got, um, I believe, five scenarios in the base game. I may be remembering that wrong. It's, it's been several months or a few months since I played this. Um, and you got the board, a book. Then you got a character booklet, almost like Apocalypse World style, where you, you fold a sheet in half, and it's it's not like it's not like thick. It's just you print off a piece of paper or take them out of the off the pad, and you fold it in half. And so it's got a cover inside, a couple pages, and the, the back. There's like 16 of those, and they're each different constellations, almost like different pirate characters. They're not named, but they're more of like um, like a role, a little more general. Yeah. Now you get a pirate character randomly, probably one you haven't seen before. Hopefully. You play this game a ton. Then you're gonna name your character. Then you're gonna like flip to the inside, and there's like um, a Mad Lib style thing where it's like name a tiny creature, name your best friend, mm-hmm. name a city that sounds sad, and you just fill these out. Every every person has different ones, right? Because there's those 16 different character sheets. So you all fill that out. Okay, <laughs> then you start playing and you have stats for your character like an rpg they'll add to, to stat checks the ship that you guys are all sailing in has like different positions like one person runs the cannons one person runs like the quartermaster spot and your supplies all this stuff okay and then you got an app okay i'm not even done talking about everything in the game still and this is not a heavy game you got the app which is like the best integrated app of any board game i've played um i've played most games that use an app that's like a thing that I don't love, but I like to try those games. I like Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, um, but I think that app is a little too intrusive, a little too important to, this, to the play. This one just narrates passages for you. You like put in numbers sometimes based on like if you hit a location, you might put in like 61. You put it in, in the app based on your scenario, and it will randomly give you like an event, and that's how Crossroads trigger. Now, it doesn't – it pulls random events from like a pool, so when you play again – Maybe you'll see something different with that number, okay? So that's pretty neat. Um, and then it, it has voice acting for all of the, the scripted passages in there. Oh, that's cool. And, like, your captain will speak. And, and yeah, so it's, like, it's just super immersive. Now, those are the, all the elements. And then there's dice rolling and, and some other stuff. Um, but all of it really works together to, to produce this, like, awesome pirate cooperative adventure game. It's not an adventure game, like... Merchants and Marauders is, which is like my favorite pirate game. That's more of like a traditional adventure game, as we would call it, like Runebound or whatever. Um, this is really kind of its own thing. It's kind of like a narrative game where you would like read from the book together, but you don't. It's it's just from the app, and it's it's not like super long. Like passages are like twenty seconds, but I don't really know. It's like a blend of adventure and, and scripted narrative. But then like the map will sort of you'll encounter random stuff because you draw tiles and it's different every play. Like the main area you're going for each scenario will be the same and some like story beats in the scenario will be the same every time you play. So you can't play the same scenario like 50 times, but you could play it like four times maybe. Um, But like each tile as you explore the ocean along the way is going to be randomized. So it's not going to be the same. And then when you pull the same number, like I said, 61, it's going to be taken from a, a small pool of different events. So there's like an emergent narrative and it combines emergent narrative with scripted narrative for the scenarios in a like seamless way that's really excellent. The the character stuff is really cool. Like you'll um, you'll increase skills as you play, which add to your die rolls for like skill checks. Um, and after, after you increase skills a certain amount, you'll like check the boxes. You hit like a star um, at different intervals within the character sheet, and that means you you fill in a, a dot on your constellation, which is also in your character sheet, 
which is a neat thing because constellations, of course, tie into like sea mythology and, and pirates and all that stuff. Um, and if like you fill in certain bubbles of your constellation, it will trigger narrative passages like in the cleanup phase kind of of rounds for your storybook of your pirate. So you got like this scenario, which is separate. Then you got your own personal little like story, which is like more comedic at times and not really super serious, but it's it's a thing to laugh about. And that's when it uses your Mad Libs in your own story for your character sheet. So it's it's just this game's kind of wild, but it's it's a mainstream release, and it's I don't want to say it's well refined because it's messy, but it doesn't feel like it's falling apart. It doesn't feel like there's too much there. It doesn't feel like a Kickstarter game, for instance, where like they threw everything in. I'm not trying to say it's messy in that way. It's just there's a lot going on, but it's easy to teach. Like the worker spots you do, um, like so. We say we get to an island, ref, and we each are playing, and maybe there's two other people playing. You can play this with up to like seven people. I haven't done that, but supposedly it, it works really well because it's not like you're sharing stuff. It, you know, it's it's more of like the stories together. But you'll just have one worker, and it'll show you the action spaces, what they're called, like visit this hut maybe if we're on an island, or go to the blacksmith, or go to the shipyard, whatever. And it'll have some icons which give you a clue of what will happen. And then to the right of that, it will have a more detailed resolution of what's going to happen in that space. But you're timed. And I don't remember how much time specifically it changes based on the difficulty. But say you have like a, a 45 seconds. You're not supposed to read what the, what the actual spaces do, like all the way. You're just supposed to be like, okay, who's going where? And then like really quickly put your workers down. And then you go top to bottom resolving each location. This game is just neat. Like it, it, it's a real strong sense of adventure. It's a strong narrative. It's not too heavy-handed in terms of, of controlling the experience. It's not a strategic game. You make strategic choices, but it's not a game you're playing for strategy. It's a game you're playing for the experience, the cooperative narrative. Um, and I just I really, really dig like all of the elements individually as well as combined, and it, it just works so well. I think the downsides of this game are that the difficulty is definitely swingy. Like, you hit points where it becomes easier if you can kind of build up your supplies get ahead and stuff you lose from like several different ways like if your your crew token which represents the players as well as like npc you know crew members in the ship gets below the morale um in which case like there's a, a mutiny um you lose if your haul gets to the bottom um i think you lose if your food runs out all the way and each of those losses like leads to a different scripted ending that you read which is kind of interesting um yeah, so that that's like that works pretty well, but the, the difficulty of being swingy is definitely a possible downside. You could find it um, hard, possibly, if you're group and lose a couple times. I lost, I think, the first scenario and played it a couple times. It works great solo, as well as like more players. I've played it with three and solo. I've not played it with more because of COVID. I'm gonna play this with my main group soon. Um, there's an official like online implementation, but it's not what you think it's not it doesn't have everything it's got oh. certain aspects to facilitate playing online you still need someone with a storybook and like a board set up but it's got like the roles kind of divided online and i think it has a dice roller online um so that's kind of cool i was gonna say it sounds like they've they've really started to like lean into the storybook thing and kind of evolve it because it it, it had some a bumpy launch i guess i would say while they while they worked on it but but they're getting better it sounds mm-hmm. like and this one has pretty much had yeah, overwhelming yeah. praise. Yeah, and and the fact that, I mean, it is a story. So, you're, so the storybook, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, 
I was gonna say like it, it, as a narrative, it feels like a narrative game. Like I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. but so they they they've evolved the storybook as well, which I think is great. But they've also like evolved the integration of apps from a more general perspective in games. Like it's it's hard to explain unless you've played this game because uh-huh. um, it's not a companion app. It's necessary, but it's not like the I don't know. It's it's more of like a app that sits on the side and and doesn't really bother you. So it's it's hard. It's just this is a weird game. Um, and it's unlike anything else I've ever seen, even though parts are like like uh, other games. Mm-hmm. So I I love this game. It's not without flaws. You know, you, you it's got dice rolling. It's random. The difficulty is wonky. And if you don't like narrative games, you're not going to like it. Um, but if you do, like, you need to check this game out. I'm not saying go and buy it. But, like, if you get a chance to play it at a convention, it's not a campaign. Each scenario, um, let's talk about that. So each scenario... There's five, I think I said in the, in the base game, mm-hmm. um, is like three or four hours. That's good and bad. So you're, I think it intends for you to play the scenario in two like chapters, two acts of about two hours. It's got like a breaking point in the middle that you can kind of stop there, design that way, or you can kind of blast through it and play it all at once. But they're not linked, so I kind of like that. Maybe they'll have a campaign eventually. Um, but they did come out with their first DLC, a scenario. I think it's five bucks or six bucks. Mm-hmm. I've not bought that yet, but once my group plays this more, I definitely will because I want them to make more. I want to support that. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't want to say, don't know what else to say about it because it's it's hard to talk about and sort of um, like bounce stuff off your ref when you haven't played it. Sure. It's weird. Um, but yeah, I, I heavily recommend. Forgotten Waters. If it's not my favorite game of 2020, it's like my second favorite. Pretty close. Yeah. So that's from Plaid Hat. Yeah, it's been out for um, like maybe over a year. Like it maybe came out like January, February 2020. I'm not exactly sure, but it, it's been out for it's been a out long for a time. Bit, yeah. So it's not, yeah, not hard to find. That's Forgotten Waters. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a much older game, um, but also kind of ever changing and, and new, and that is uh, Magic. So I, I, I alluded in the last episode that I'm <laughs> getting into Magic, um, and and it's interesting because I, I feel like most board gamers are familiar with Magic. It is it is such a juggernaut in the industry that you, if you haven't played it, you probably kind of know the basics of it. Um, when I got into board gaming, I had played Magic a little bit in college, a little bit in like middle school, never seriously, but enough that even now I remembered how lands worked and I remembered some of the rules about like summoning sickness, which it has a different name now, but um, I knew how the stack works, like some basics. Uh, and you know, the the I felt like a lot of board gamers are really mean to Magic. Uh, certainly, when I got into the hobby, they were in the communities that I was in. You know, the, the board game subreddit and BGG and stuff like that. They're just there's a lot of hate for the uh, for the land system and for the the blind buy system, and so it just got got dismissed out offhand. And I didn't think anything of it, but having played it, and I keep saying like I think we've been a little bit too mean to Magic. Those of us who who have been dismissive of it, um, you know, and, and I know that it is still very popular among board gamers. I'm not trying to act like, oh, I just discovered this game. Like, did you guys hear about this Magic <laughs> game, right? Um, but I just had these yeah. this like preconceived negative vision of it. Um, I didn't have hate for it, but I just figured it was there and it was making money and it was doing their thing. And I'm glad it was there for people who like it. And I just didn't have any interest. Um, and my buddy Matt convinced me to try it with on on Magic Arena, which is the uh, the online um, free-ish uh, implementation of Magic that you can play like on the computer. It's now available on, on iOS and Android. And man, I got hooked hard and fast. 
Uh, this was like like Netrunner hooked. Like it, like the first time I played Netrunner. It, I don't think it's quite as good as Netrunner, but it's got that same like bug in my brain where I'm thinking about it all the time. The the table that I'm recording at right now, there's just like cards scattered all over it because we we bought uh, some paper cards from the new Strixhaven set that just came out, which is Wizard School, uh, and we're doing sealed and draft, which uh, I'll get into a little bit some of the differences. But basically, I've got I've got cards here and there. I've, you know, it's kind of everywhere. Um, and I, one of the things that's really compelling about it is that there is a ton of really clever design packed into a game that structurally has not changed all that much in you know 30 years right land still works the same way it comes from the, the original five colors and you've got a you can only put one land out per turn and you tap it to spend land and you've got creatures and spells and instants and sorceries and and some of those elements are identical to when i played in elementary school um but the game feels dramatically different these days uh and and some of it not just in the sense that like oh they've they've added keywords right like they've added i don't know hexproof i think is relatively new i don't think that existed when i was in elementary school which means that you can't target your opponent's cards you've got to figure out other ways to deal with it um they've added things like that but they've got double-sided cards now like i'm holding one right now that is a creature on one side and a sorcery on the other side and they have different um, different effects, obviously. And when you play it, you choose which side you pick and it puts into play. And like once the creature's a green creature, the other one's a black spell. So like, you know, like you're, you're the deck you would put that into, maybe you want to be able to play both sides. Maybe you just want one side, right? Um, there's, there's cards that are split in half and have two sides to it. Um, and you can cast one side as an instant. And if you do that, you can still cast the creature half of it later. It's, it's almost like they saw the, they, they heard, Blizzard designers say like, well, in Hearthstone, you can have double-sided cards. You could never do that in a card game. And they were like, yeah, no, hold my printing press and figured out ways to do it and make it work, right? Um, and and I, I wanted, when I say like there's clever design, I really wanted to highlight something. Um, I, I cannot, like, first of all, I'm not qualified, but I, I cannot like dig into all the rules and mechanisms of magic. The full rules for a game of, for, for Magic the Gathering, it's like a 258 page document or something like that. It's like the rules for college baseball. Um, and so, I, but what I can do is I can kind of use an example of what I'm talking about. And I have this deck that is um, red and blue giants. And so giants are big stompy creatures. They tend to be fairly expensive, uh, but when they come into play, they have a big impact. And there's, you know, I've got like four or five different giants in the deck. That's not, that's not really what matters. Um, the, so the, most of the giants are red cards, but most of the spells that I'm casting or many of the spells that I'm casting are blue cards. And so when you're building a deck in magic, you, at, at, if you wanted to do it the easy way, you just grab half your land, make it islands, half your land, make it um, mountains. Um, the catch though, is that, that, and this is one of the things that magic often gets criticized for is that you might draw a bunch of mountains and have a bunch of blue cards in your hand and then you can't do anything or vice versa or you might not draw enough and then you can't do anything that sort of stuff so to account for that right to, to not change the core mechanism of magic which is the way land works they started designing all these different and creative lands to address these problems so also in my deck instead of a card that is just an island or just a mountain i have some that can be either one either or 
So I, I put it into play. Um, and then when I tap it for, for mana, I choose if it, at that moment it's an island or if it's a mountain. Now, the downside of this is that it comes into play tapped, which means I can't use it the turn I play it, uh, which slows you down, right? And so that's the, that's the downside to this. And so if you're playing a very fast, aggressive deck, you don't want to use these lands. But me playing slow giants that aren't coming into play until turn four, turn five anyway that's not actually a hit for me if I'm playing it early in the game because I'm not I'm not really doing anything with my mana early. So that's one way that they've kind of addressed some of these mana issues. Another one that I find interesting is that I mentioned I have big red giants and I have a lot of blue spells. Most of my blue spells are cards that I want to be playing really early in a match. Uh, and so if you didn't have any of these special lands, what you would need to do then is skew your land so that you had more islands than mountains. Even if the overall composition is 50-50, if you want to have, if you want to ensure that you can play early, you need to skew your lands in one direction. So they've they printed these double-sided land cards, and so it's on an it's an island on one side and it's a mountain on the other side. When you play it, you choose which side it is, and then that's permanently fixed as that side it is not either or like the other one that i mentioned um, and so i've got four of those in my deck and so what those let me do is if i have it in my hand early i can play it as an island and play the spells i need to get going if i get it in my hand late i can play it as a mountain to play some of the um, giants i have that require multiple mountain symbols and, and i need more mountains and when i realized that like when i was working on this deck and trying to unlock it and i realized like oh, these lands have ex very explicit purposes and, and very real reasons for being different. And the the costs that come, you know, like the, the one that comes into play tapped and I can't use it slows you down, but it has a different benefit. Um, and it's snow. I, I could play one that isn't snow, which then has, a, has a, a different benefit. Like there's just, I don't know, four or five different ways that they are printing these cards. And this isn't even all of them. That just... To me, that was the moment where it clicked really just how deeply and well thought out all of these aspects are design. And as someone who, you know, Charlie, you and I analyze games and critique games like this, that was a big moment for me. Not that I wasn't having fun already, but before I just started to really appreciate the thoughtfulness that goes into all of these cards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, magic as a game, as a design is like foundational to yeah. the entire genre of card games and hobby gaming. Like yeah. the, the DNA of magic is in every single card game. I, I would challenge anyone to find a game on their shelf that doesn't have an element of magic yeah. or some iteration on an idea that Richard Garfield came up with. Yeah. The only one so it's, it's, it's usually, I, I can't believe you didn't respect magic graph. That's all. <laughs> I remember reading a review for Netrunner. I think it was, um, Robert Florence, who wrote it, and he said that the only game he's ever played that did not feel like you could trace its lineage to magic was Netrunner, which is just a different Rod, <laughs> like um, uh, Richard Garfield design. Yeah. <laughs> so like the only person who's ever been able to do it is the guy who did magic originally. Um, so I thought, so I just, I thought that's really cool. And then the other thing, again, I, I can't get into the rules for this podcast, but for other listeners, if like me, you're familiar with magic, but you didn't know all the details and you're wondering, you know, why someone who was so in love with like the LCG model could get into this is that 
there's two broad categories of ways to play Magic. Um, there's constructed and limited. And constructed is what I was familiar with. Uh, you build a deck, you, you bring it to your game night, you play it. That's that's like Netrunner. That's like every other deck construction, Legend of the Five Rings, Game of Thrones, every other one I've ever talked about on this podcast. You build your deck outside of the game, you bring your deck and you play. Um, within constructed, there's like a hundred different ways to play. It seems like there's casual modes, competitive modes, certain sets of legality. Uh, there's a mode where you have a hundred cards in your deck and you can only have one copy of each card. Uh, it's called Commander and it, it, that's actually the most popular way to play apparently. Um, but there's all these different modes to address all these different players. Um, the other one, and this is this is what I've really fallen in love with, is Limited. And Limited has two broad categories. There's Excuse me. There's um, there's sealed, which is you open six booster packs, and then that's the cards you have to build your deck. You whatever you got out of those six packs, you build the best deck that you can. You can add lands. Basic lands are the only cards that you can add, um, and then you go play. And in theory, your power is bounded, right? You, you can only have you can your deck can only be so strong because you only have access to that certain pool. Um, and it's a really popular way for game nights or for game stores to run events like when a new set comes out when everyone's no one's really familiar with it yet no one's played with it yet you do you do sealed and it's six booster packs um then there's draft which is um very popular and you open three booster packs you pick a card pass it pick a card pass it um kind of like seven wonders or any other drafting board game um and what you're doing there is again it is a limited set of cards like you're not going to be able to build decks that are as strong as they are in constructed but because there's this element of picking certain cards um, and then also an element of reading the cards that are being sent to you and leaning into what's being what, what the good cards are being sent to you what that means for your deck there's it's almost this like meta game of skill um, I'm really bad at it but I really enjoy it uh, and and I'm having a ton of fun with it w much more so um, than kind of the standard what's called st the, the standard uh, ranked play that that I'll, I'll get into in a second um, so where I've been playing is mostly on arena, um, with, with game nights picking back up, I'll probably start playing in person a little bit. Uh, I have played a few games in person. Uh, I, I much prefer playing in person, uh, but arena is a hugely successful, you know, app slash program, computer, computer game for wizards. Um, they've programmed the entire game of magic. It does full rules enforcement. It is not like tabletop simulator or anything like that. It, you know, it can, it'll tap your mana for you. It'll highlight what you can and can't play. Um, at any given time, you can hover over any card and it'll make it large so that you can read it and then pull out little tool tips that explain what all the keywords mean. So even if you've never played, you can, you can run through the tutorial and just kind of start playing and it, it puts the, the relevant rules there when you need them, uh, which I find pretty amazing, especially given how complex some of it is. Uh, some of the strengths of arena i think are uh if you're just playing casually it's free and they really do kind of throw cards at you um, they give you a ton of cards when you start and you get through the tutorials and then uh every two levels you get a booster pack you get a 15 card or an eight card booster pack of cards that you can add to your deck um you know of typically of the most recent set so it's a great way to start building your collection uh and then as you open packs, you also earn what are called wild cards that you can just cash in for any card you want. Uh, and the idea there is that kind of simulates trading. Like sometimes you'd be in the store and you'd open a booster pack and you don't want this rare, so you trade it for someone else's rare. In this, they just give you a wild card and then you can go pick anyone you want. And it, it kind of has that feel. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. I 
I, uh, I like flat out, you, you, you won't be able to play the, at the highest levels of ranked play without spending money. Um, but if you just kind of want to check the game out and fool around in the unranked modes, you can do that. And there's a lot of like mini tournaments and events that you can participate in that just use the, um, the free currency, the gold that you get kind of basically by just grinding out plays. Um, so I think it's, I think it is fairly free to play friendly, certainly not the most free to play friendly game I've ever played, but I mean, it's fine. I, um, you know, for the first like month or so, I didn't put any money into it and I had opened up like 50 booster packs or something like that. Uh, so yeah. So like it, it feels good. Um, the catch though. All right. And so this is like, I was, was planning out my notes in my head all day. Like how ranty do I get and how much of it is just going to sound like a bad player whining, (laughs) right? Um, which is totally fair. Like I I don't want to, like I said, I'm not an expert at this game, but the, the, the catch with competitive play. And, and this is like one of the great things about having a computer game or an app is that you can get a game anytime, anywhere, very quickly, right? You have a million, millions and millions of opponents and, and there's always a game to be had. The catch there is that, first of all, there's no social element to it. There's no chat, um, which is probably a good thing. Uh, there's no, there's a friends list, but you can't really friends request someone you just had a game with. Um, it's not, it's not easy to do that. Uh, and so you lose the social element. So when you don't have the social element of sitting across the table from playing with someone, all you really have is the game. And that's where recently me and my buddies have started to feel like it's getting really grindy. Um, and more importantly, at the end of the day, there's like a 1500 legal cards in standard, but the subset of good cards and decks that are top level is much, much smaller than that. And so if you're playing ranked play, uh, which, you know, which is what I have been doing to try to earn rewards for more booster packs, you end up seeing the same decks over and over again. And you very quickly start to recognize when the deck that you have built yourself that you think is fun just isn't isn't going to cut it anymore. And not like, oh, man, if I just had this one rare, it would be better. It, like, just fundamentally, my, my Giants deck has a ceiling. And I feel like I got pretty close to hitting it in the last month. I got to diamond rank with the Giants, and then it was just a brick wall. Um, and you, you have to have a greater than 50% win rate to go up to the next tier. And there's just no way... I was going to get that with the Giants deck. Um, maybe if I like had invested a little bit and and really pushed it, I, maybe I could have gotten to Mythic with it, but it would have been truly like grinding. Um, and this really hit home this past month when I was kind of, I didn't want to grind. And I was like, well, you know what? Let me go just net deck a top tier deck and play with it um, and, and learn from it, right? I, I, I tried to build my own version of, a deck I knew was popular and very high performing and it was just fine and not great. And I was like, well, you know what? I'll net deck this top tier deck from the internet and I'll go play with it and I'll learn how to make my other one better. And it, it just absolutely blew what I was playing with out of the water. Um, forget a 50% win rate. <laughs> I like, it was like 28 and two. Um, and I'm not, again, I'm not, an experienced good player it was easy to get to mythic with this deck uh easy to climb into the like top five percent of mythic players like it, it was nothing to do that um and it almost hit a point where like well this wasn't fun either like i didn't i didn't overnight become a better magic player i just picked a better deck uh and 
it was cool. Like I got some prizes out of it, but I don't know that it felt good. And now, and then the meta has adjusted. So like only two, three weeks later, all of a sudden that deck is, is sub 50%, like the meta adjusted to it. And again, so like now I guess I either go net deck again, um, or play a totally different, like it just, I just, I hit that point of competition where I realized in the, in the ranked play, I had hit a level where if I wanted to keep playing, I needed to commit to one of these, you know, five or six top decks. Um, but that's not the, that's not what's fun for me. Like I, I enjoy, you know, I like big stompy creatures and some cool spells and those aren't super pop, super big right now. Uh, And the one that is the couple that are, are not, they're just not the, the kind I enjoy. Um, and so it feels a little bit like I can't really do anything. Um, and then the other part about playing on the app that makes this difficult is again, there's no social element. So there's no cost to conceding like concessions seem to happen like every other game. Um, and especially again, like up in the, in the, when I was in mythic tier last month, it's like, I could tell which of these decks I was facing within the first two or three turns. And I could also tell based on my draw, if I felt like I had any chance to beat that deck. And so you very quickly, you're two or three turns in and you know whether or not it's going to be a waste of time uh, to play. And since I'm Mm -hmm. not making friends and I'm not playing in a league and I'm not sitting there hanging out and I'm trying to squeeze in a game on my lunch break, I just concede. Like I'm not going to spend the time to go through this, like play through this 20, 30 minute control deck just to get, you know, owned at the very end of it. And I think what happens sometimes is, so any game that feels like is hopeless to me, I'm going to concede. And any game that feels hopeless to my opponent, they're going to concede. So the only games you get to yeah. play, right? Like you, you don't, you don't often get to see your deck just absolutely go off on a perfect play because you also needed your opponent's deck to be smoothly, right? Like you, your opponent needed to see their hand and figure like, I have a chance to win this. And, and then you also need that to happen on a turn on a game where like, you've got all the stars lined up. So all that sticks out in your mind or in my mind anyway, are all the times the stars didn't line up and I drew like, oh, I drew too many lands or I didn't draw any lands or like, oh, I just oh, I couldn't draw anything good. And like those start to pile up more and more and more because I don't get to see the times that I was going to be awesome because my opponent conceded right? For any number of reasons, not just because they yeah. were losing, right? So it, it's kind of got this this weird play, I, I guess this, this warping effect. Um, again, and this is only when I'm playing ranked and only when I got to like the top ranked tier with this net deck. Um, up until last week, I wouldn't have been saying this. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even experienced it, but it, it's been on my mind. Um, the exact opposite of that though is draft so again i I said i I, i'm not very good at it but i've fallen in love with draft and because of the way it works a program you you can always draft there's always opponents available for you to hop into a draft um the cues to to do an eight person draft are like a minute long which normally with paper magic you'd have to wait until you know friday night magic and hope that they were going to do a draft event that night or maybe saturday night is draft night like it's it's not as ready available you can you can draw. You can draft all day if you if you want to. Um, and there's even a mm-hmm. mode where you can draft against bots, so there's no timer. And that's been great for me to learn, right? Because I'll I'll see the pack, and I'll be like, oh boy, half those cards look great, but I know that half those cards are not great. There's probably only two or three realistic cards to pick in this pack. Oh, I I can go do research, right? Like I can stop. I can go look online. I can ask a Discord chat. Like I can. It's almost like class right like i can go through it either with other people or with my own research and truly like 
learn what is the good pick here? Why is this the good pick? Take my time to be like, what, what cards are being passed to me? What signals should I be picking up um, when you're playing against the bots, which is not, you know, obviously does not map one-to-one with playing with human beings, but for a new player like me, I, I'm not, I'm not reading human signals anyway. Right. So um, it's been a great opportunity to learn. Um, the catch to that is that limited draft play does cost money um, as opposed to like standard, which you can really grind out. Now, uh, if you if you just do the free stuff and you play the free stuff all day and you, you just kind of do your daily quests, then you can draft, um, I think, more than once a week without spending any money. If you want to draft more than that, you've got to buy some gems. Um, you know, you do get to keep all the cards, so it does add to your collection that you can then go use to play in Constructed. So it, it does feed itself, but you know, the downside is like the more I, I want to draft, the more I have to be like, okay, well, don't don't turn into one of those people who sits there like slot machining a free-to-play game. Um, control yourself, right? <laughs> um, which is where which is where Paper Magic coming back is great. Uh, so we're going to be playing this week a little bit. I think we're going to do a, an in-person draft, which I'm looking forward to. Because uh, again, playing in, in, in person is so much more fun. Um, but then the other thing, which I wanted to give a shout out, is that I think Wizards of the Coast either partnered with or acquired this company. Um, but there's a way to set up a webcam or just your phone camera over a table and play remotely. It's an, it's an app called Spell Table. Um, and the camera will pick up the cards that you have on the table and then do the same interface on your computer that the arena does where like I can, if I see a card that mm. my buddy's playing, I can hover my mouse over it and it'll pop up a high resolution version awesome. of it and give you all the rules. Yeah, it's like a, you know, what is it? The um, like augmented reality overlay Mm -hmm. for playing magic with your actual paper cards which is like really cool yeah that's crazy yeah so so i don't know i I like i had a lot more like i was going to talk about with some of the the decks but i don't don't know that it's actually worth digging into them i've just i'm so fascinated by this game that i had ignored for so long (laughs) right um and i'm wondering if my part of my my issues with ranked play right now is that so the way rotation works in magic right now, there's, I think six sets of legal cards. Um, and each set has like 250 to 300 cards in it. So like it's a lot of legal cards and I just have no way of even knowing what is out there to put into my deck. Right. With, with competitive games like this, the big challenge with like meta play is that, you know, so this is so popular of a game, and you can play online. So it's like there's, uh, I don't know, if there's maybe even millions of plays, right, over like a certain period of time happening to where the meta, there's always going to be a meta in a game that's competitive or even non-competitive, really. But it's going to develop to a point where, like you like you said, you have to run certain decks, and you know, because people have been able to sort of develop those strategies because of the the volume of mm-hmm. plays and the data, mm-hmm. right? Like if it wasn't as popular or if you didn't play online and you're just playing with friends, right? That, that's what's happened when you play with friends. You're going to have a meta there, but you can break that meta yeah. because it's not as tested. It's not as, as you know, it's gonna, not gone through the rigors of thousands of online plays. And I think that's what really is probably 
the most negative aspect of it being online and being yeah. able to play so much and easily. Yeah, there was um, one, a podcast I started listening to that talks about this starting to feel like the beginning of the era of big data for Magic because um, Arena mm-hmm. Arena actually has a, a relatively open API and there's people mining the data f- for Arena games and and well that seems terrible right like they're put they're put like for for Magic I mean yeah like. <laughs> they're putting up you know lists right like this uh, there's a there's a website where you can go onto and it say hey this this deck has a 65% winning rate in these tiers and here's all of the cards that are in it and it'll even like you can link your account and it'll tell you like oh hey you have enough wild cards that you can craft this deck copy paste boom now you have this 65% winning deck and so like as it makes minor tweaks all of these these websites and stuff are adjusting and and get this there's there's a website called 17 lands um, which is limited focus so it doesn't do it for a constructed standard it does it for limited but if you're running the 17 lands little app while you draft it records your entire draft not just what you picked but all of the other cards that you did not pick in each each round mm-hmm. of the draft right then it records the deck you build and then when you play the game it records every single turn and play that you and your opponents make for every game you play in draft um and you can share it so like i can share that with someone and say hey i don't know if i misplayed here what do you think about this play and you can talk about it um but more important than that now this website is looking at draft and analyzing cards and saying and it feels like Moneyball, right like it's not just oh yeah. white decks are winning the most in strixhaven or whatever it is this particular common if you have it in your opening hand, improves your win rate by 2%. But the same card, if it's not in your opening hand and you draw it, it, it reduces your win rate. So this is a really good, so they're using this to say like, this is a good aggro card, right? Um, then you can find out like, this card is being picked on average. On, on average, you're seeing it, it's being picked seventh. So if you see it, you know that it's not gonna come back around. And so like, there, there's just an immense amount of, data analytics going on um that are that are i don't I'm, it's not it's not warping it it's just that when the professionals talk about these podcasters talk about it they're not just saying working on their intuition anymore they're they're pulling this information up and saying like hey these three cards are getting picked really late but if you put them together they have this fantastic win rate so you know don't pick it early let it wheel around and grab it, you, you you be confident that you can get it. And then they start talking about it and posting blog po- posts about it. And then it's popular and then you can't get it anymore. Exactly, yeah, and it shifts. And, yeah. and so two weeks later, they're podcasting and saying, hey, those of us who those of us who do this like professionally and stream all the time, we've noticed this. And now there's like a new draft meta on Arena because everyone started going after the red-white aggro cards and now you can't get them anymore, and it's diluted the power of that deck, and now green white's rising, or, or whatever, right? Um, so it's just, it's just, I don't know. Like it, it's like fascinating for me on on a lot of aspects. It's like really interesting to get into the design. I, I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying playing, right? And then there's this whole data element, I guess that's that's really cool. Um, and and I started playing with Call Time, which was the the previous set, and so I did a lot of drafting. I feel very comfortable that I know how most of the cards in Call Time work. Similar with the new one with Strixhaven. And if, if I keep up with it, right? Um, I'm hoping that when rotation hits after the next set, um, which the next set is D&D themed, and it drops four of those, and we're down to only three or four active sets, and I'm way more familiar with them, I'm wondering if I'll enjoy that 
standard constructed play a little bit more because I'll have familiarity with the cards and the card pools that, that it's pulling from and I'll have played with them. So it'll be easier for me to build a deck right now. I just, I just feel lost. Like, Oh, I've been playing three months. I didn't even know that card existed. Cool. <laughs> Wipes out my, you know, like, like they, they yeah. were able to tweak the meta into this like card that just happens to wipe out all the weak monsters I, I have in my deck. And it's like, ah, yes. Okay. You weren't playing that two weeks ago. Now you are. And now my deck sucks. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, like, I don't even know, like, didn't know what to say about it. Just that I'm, I'm kind of blown away by how I, I've never experienced something like this, where I had such a, a preconceived notion about a game that is that was like so wrong. Especially given the fact that I played it, like I played it in college and I enjoyed it, um, but not not the way I enjoy it now, and certainly not what I would have expected last year, right? With what I remembered of playing in college, like it's just been so much more than that. Yeah. Wait till next year. What are you being to then? Yeah, maybe, right. Like so, maybe like competitive twister. <laughs> right. It's like, am I going to stop painting, uh, painting minis, and then get into magic? This is just my like ever changing evolution of Raph. It, people, my my friends do joke that I I go through Raph fads, where like I get really really into something for like, you know, hot and dangerous for a short period of time, and then I move on to the next one. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so we'll see but for now you know if you want to if you want to find me on magic arena my username is captain raffi you can you can look me up hopefully people can go out there and, and beat the hell out of you that's what you know what it's not that hard right now i <laughs> like oh god like when i i was feeling so good coming out of call time like my last few drafts in call time i was like i'd go like six and three and the most you can you can you play to seven wins or three losses and i was like six three six three i felt like i was on the cusp like i was starting to understand this game and like oh this is this is great and then i start playing strixhaven it's like oh three oh three one three oh three it's like (laughs) woof okay nope i understood one set after playing it a bunch i have absolutely no fundamental knowledge yet Um, all right, so let's wrap it up. That'll do episode 116. Um, thank you, as always, everyone for tuning in, especially those of you who've been with us for so long, uh, for sticking around and coming back and, and the kind words um, on social media. Uh, thank you to our sponsor, Miniature Market and the Inside Voices Network. If you want to find us, um, the best places are Twitter and Board Game Geek Guild. We do have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash dingandent, uh, but I haven't seen a lot of notifications come through on there i don't think a lot of people find us on facebook um and to be fair we're not often on facebook we are however very regularly um on the board game geek guild which is guild number 2576 um our twitter is at ding and dent and i am very online at captain raffi r-a-f-f-i and i'm active on twitter as well i'm at charlie feel Remember, you can subscribe to us. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and more. And there's an RSS link at our website, www.dingandentcast.com. You can also shoot us an email or comment through our website, and we'd love to hear what you think. Um, yeah, if you are using one of those apps, um, a review would be great, especially right now as we're trying to kind of build back up Steam. Um, it would help to get uh, some visibility. Uh, thank you again, as always, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. See ya.